day the Pharisees came up to Jesus and they were endeavoring to catch him in a fault. And they were seeking to discredit and to dishonor him in any way that they could. And so they came up with what they thought was a trick question. Can you imagine coming to the Word made flesh and attempting to trick him about the things and he knows all things and spoke the Word and the worlds into existence and so they asked, is, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife or divorce his wife for every cause or for any cause? Now, in Judaism at the time of our Lord, things had so devolved that divorce was rampant, even among the Jews. And later on in the first century, when Paul was writing the guidelines for marriage, it was uh, uh, juvenile records one woman who had, was marrying her 28th husband, and he was marrying his 27th wife when marrying her. This was just business as usual uh, in the, the Roman Empire. So that's not what we're talking about tonight. But you see the background for these, the Pharisees' question. Is it lawful? Can a man put away his wife for anything that he wants to? Our Lord always uh, so wisely uh, answered their question in a way I'm sure they did not expect. He answers them by taking them to the Scripture. And that's how we ought to always answer any question, What saith the Lord? Your opinion and my opinion is just that. We want to know what the Lord's Word says about it. It was not somebody's opinion that mattered. Today we have many voices and opinions, and anyone who has a technical device, electronic device, can tweet, twerk, blog, Facebook their opinion to all the world. And uh, it's not the, the, the opinion that, that matters, but God's word, his, his standard, his pattern established from the very beginning that mattered. Jesus says in Matthew 19, 4, where this situation takes place, have you not read? Boy, that settles, that sets the stage, doesn't it? Have you not read the Bibles? What he was saying, do you not know the scripture? These were... The theologians, these were Bible scholars and experts who were asking him this trick question. And what a put down when the Son of God said, Haven't you ever read that he which made them, that's God, at the beginning made them male and female, two distinct beings, and said, for this cause, this purpose, this reason, for this institution, shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. And they twain, or the two, shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no man, no more two, but one. What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Before God established human government or his church, his bride, or his kingdom, his people on earth through the Israelites, God established the home. He lays the cornerstone himself in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, for marriage, for all mankind, for all time. The picture here is God himself, and what a beautiful picture it is, performing the first wedding ceremony for the first couple. And he gives here his will, his pattern for the human race. Everything 
in civilization that we know flows from this very institution, this very ceremony that God is establishing. Every other thing, the world as we know it, flows from this edict, from this pattern that God has established. Is it any wonder that Satan is not trying to absolutely obliterate it and destroy it? It is God's pattern, his plan that he establishes here for mankind, for the preservation of mankind in his will. There would be no church were there not for families. There would be no government were it not for the families that God is establishing here. There, there are several things to note here. I want us to draw our attention to them that, first of all, God invented marriage. It is not a human contrivance. It is not a, a societal evolution. It is not an evolution that society brought about over periods of time, something devised by humans. This union and the design for marriage comes from above. It is presented to man. It is handed down from heaven to earth. Just like the mystery of the church that was unfolded. It was God's pattern, His plan, His design for His bride here on earth. Uh, unknown or un, uh, a mystery to the Old Testament saints and believers. Man could not have contrived the, the, the organism, the body of Christ. And the, the, the architect is God Himself and He hands it down and... This is what he does here in establishing the home. He has the right, therefore, since he invented it, because he is creator and sovereign over all, to give the guidelines for this institution that he calls to be, that he has established. Remember, it is God who said, it is not good for man to be alone. Adam did not make a request for a mate. He didn't know enough to make a request for a mate. God saw that Adam needed a helpmeet. It is God who said that, who made note of that. God knows what you and I need before we know what we need. He's already thought about all that we could possibly need from now through eternity. Our, our Lord has gone to prepare a place for us because He knows exactly what we will need as His people throughout the eternal ages. He said it wasn't good for... Uh, Adam to be alone. It wasn't lonely. Adam saying, I, I would wish you would do something for me. I wish you'd make me uh, a wife. He, he didn't even know enough to, to do that, to ask that. Secondly, not only did God invent marriage and design the institution and give it to us, we see the purposes of marriage are given here. First of all, we see in verse 18 that man should not be alone. God established marriage for companionship, intimacy. It is a beautiful and gracious gift that God gives to, to us in marriage, companionship, uh, a kindred spirit, uh, that was someone who, that we can share our lives with. So one of the purposes for marriage was for companionship. Secondly, he said, I will make and help meet for him. In other words, someone to assist Adam in the job description that I've invented for him. He was to dress and to keep the garden and he needed uh, a help meet someone to complete him. A completer is what the scripture is saying there. there. And so God gave him the, the, the commission to have dominion over creation. And God gave him a partner, someone to assist him in doing that. We see these first two purposes reiterated very clearly, very obviously 
in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9, where we read, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Two people's labor is more than one person's labor. I'm not a very good mathematician, but I can add that up. Two are better than one. They will have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. I performed a wedding yesterday, took part in a wedding yesterday, and I told the couple that there should be three in their marriage. What about it? The husband and the wife and the Lord Jesus Christ. So not only was marriage given for companionship or intimacy, but we see there it was given for productivity. A third reason for marriage is an obvious one for procreation. We see throughout the record there before the woman was given to Adam, God told all the, the, the trees and the plants and the animals to, and the fish and the birds to reproduce after their kind. Adam could not have had a child by himself. It is an impossibility. Two men or two women cannot procreate. They cannot produce a child. Adam knew this because when he was presented with the gift of his wife, it's interesting the knowledge that Adam has is revealed as things take place. And he said this, when, when Eve was presented to him, she will be called Eve because she is the mother of all living. So he knew from this gift from the Lord that she and he would produce children and that would be part of the reason for this gift of marriage. So we see here the three purposes of marriage, companionship or intimacy, productivity, and procreation. In the wedding pronouncement of our text here in verse 24, we see two things that must take place before God's purpose of marriage can be fulfilled. And sadly, these two things sometimes do not take place and there are problems in that union. And so the message here is for not only the, the husband and wife to be or are or has been or the, the parents of them, but the message is here is for all of us. And I want you to be very attentive here. And I want to also say that, that in this series, I can rest assured that some of you are not going to like what I have to say. Can I just go ahead and, and throw that out there? And uh, it, because the scripture often goes against the way we do things. The way things are done down here where we are, wherever that is, you know, where I'm from and blah, blah, blah. And uh, as if that would supersede the standard of God's word. And so I'll just say that. But I ask you to prayerfully consider as we investigate all things concerning the home. What saith the Lord? Now, we know, however you interpret this, that he tells them to do two things in the wedding pronouncement here. They are to leave and they are to cleave. The answer, the question is to leave what or whom and to cleave to what or to whom. When you think we need to settle these elementary points. 
There must be a leaving of parents and a cleaving to the mate, and then they they shall be one flesh. This one flesh is not just a physical act, although that is a symbol of it. This gluing, as you see that word cleaving means, the becoming of one flesh is a process by God's design. It is emotional, it is physical, it is logistical, and it is ceremonial, and it is literal. Satan has tried to corrupt God's pattern here since the candles were blown out at the very first wedding ceremony, if they had candles, I'm not sure, but... I'm saying that just to illustrate. As soon as the I do's were said, and the, it used to, we were, we were, a group of us were at a wedding recently, and we said, remember when they used to tie cans to the car? How many of you remember that? And they'd go off, and, and uh, the things are so different now. We, we used to do things differently, but I remember uh, the cans, they would uh, tie it on the back of the car, and they'd rattle as they go, and all kinds of things. And, and sometimes part of the wedding party would chase the bride and groom in another car. Do you remember that? Have you ever seen that? When I was in the fifth grade, my brother, the two brothers above me got married. And uh, I was in the wedding, had some part in it. And I, I remember when they left in the car with all the cans dragged on the back of them, uh, that uh, the groomsman said, let's go chase them. And so my brother, just older than me, got in the car. Uh, and then he, he decided not to. But I got in the car with the groomsman and went off with them. And they, they chased them, I think, up to Fort Payne or something. It was all the way from Birmingham somewhere. <laughs> Made them think they were going to stay with them. And uh, the maddest I've ever seen my daddy. When I got back, he was already sick and he'd been the best man at my brother's wedding. There was nobody at the church at all when I got back there except my mother and daddy. And they didn't know where I had gone. They didn't know what was taking place. They had no idea where I was. And uh, I just throw that in because when I think about leaving and cleaving and wedding ceremonies and and traditions, the cans on the back of the car and all that, that that, that always comes to mind. But but Satan has tried to corrupt this, this plan and not very long afterwards, after this I do from Adam and Eve, we see the perversion of God's original intent for marriage begins immediately to take place. Polygamy is introduced in chapter 4 of Genesis. Evil sexual thoughts and words, the connotation there of Noah's sons when Noah is drunk, that whole thing has a, an evil connotation of immorality there in Genesis chapter 9. Adultery in Genesis chapter 16, homosexuality in Genesis chapter 19, the men of Sodom, and then the fornication and rape in Genesis chapter 34 where Dinah was molested by Prince Shechem. And on and on we could go. All of this instituted, instigated by Satan to destroy God's original and final pattern. And I, I reiterate that, that The original pattern is God's pattern down to this very day. One man and one woman for life. Our leadership of our church has met this last week and is continuing to meet to craft policies to address all these things in our official church and school documents and statements of faith, things that we never dreamed. Our forefathers in those ancient and apostolic statements of faith never dreamed that, that, that of the things that we're seeing today that, that need to be addressed very clearly. 
and uh, to present to you folks uh, to be voted on by our membership. But this is a very important thing, isn't it? It's, it's upon us and pressing. All that, that gives civilization and glues civilization together down to this very hour comes from this leaving and cleaving that God ordained at this very first wedding ceremony. And I might add that, that Satan is still everlastingly at work to destroy the beauty and the harmony and the stability and the exclusiveness of this marriage union. And he just got the help and blessing of the Supreme Court of the United States to go ahead and try to destroy this holy institution. How sad it is. It's a, it's a dark day in our nation. But I remind us that human laws cannot change or annul God's clear plan given here. This is, this is God's word. It is his law. And there's no human court that can, can alter it at one bit. Now, have you noticed something quite interesting from the text as our associate pastor read it just a few moments ago and I've reiterated it to uh, again. Notice here a man in, verse 20, uh, in Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 24, a man, not only Adam, but all men who would come after him and take wives shall do what? Shall leave his father and his mother. Does that not strike you as interesting what is unusual about this? Well, Adam doesn't have a mother and a father, does he? And at this first wedding ceremony, God is saying, man shall leave his mother and father. So this is a precedent that God is establishing. We see this throughout the scriptures. To be set down for future generations from, from this day and henceforth because Adam didn't have a mother and father, but he was going to be a father and Eve would be a mother and so he's telling them this pattern, I'm establishing it because you're going to have children. And from now on, this leaving and cleaving is my will. It is my pattern. Leave in the Hebrew means to loosen, to let go. And it is like the untying of a boat from the dock and letting it go out to sea. Or if you see a large vessel with a smaller vessel tied to it and a crew mans that smaller vessel to untying it and loosening it so it goes off on its own. It has the connotation of relinquishing oversight of it or of even forsaking. It has that, that connotation. This idea is so strong that in the old wedding vows... It is so strongly woven into the ceremony. It's all the fad for young people to write their own vows. And I know that, that men came up with those, but the old vows are based, these portions of Scripture are in them. And it says, forsaking all others. That's what it's referring to, this leaving. Forsaking those who have been dearest to you up to this point to one who will be dearer to you, who will take that place of that the most intimate relationship up until that time has been the parent-child relationship. And that is being replaced by the, the mate that this husband and wife will be receiving. To have and to hold from this day forward, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, to cleave unto thee. And to thee only. See how exclusive how plain the wedding vows are 
as long as we both shall live. When you take on a spouse, you honor them above all other relationships. Dennis Rainey writes about a young couple a few weeks after their wedding. The young husband came home to find his wife in tears. And upon investigating and asking her what was wrong, it seems that her father-in-law had called her and said, I can't believe that you forgot my wife's birthday. In the father's mind, and no doubt in the mother's mind also, I'm sure that she instigated the phone call that it was the daughter-in-law's responsibility to keep up with occasions like this, even the birthdays of her in-laws. And the young man knew he had to, to clear this up, and this young husband, and, and right from the beginning to, to set things on, on the proper course, and so he called his mother, and he, he said, Mom, I love you, and I, I want to tell you that I am so sorry that I forgot your birthday and that I didn't send you a card or, or get a gift, and I, I will, I'll make amends for that. I apologize for forgetting it, and, and please forgive my carelessness and, and oversight. I love you, and can I speak to Dad? And when Dad came to the phone, this young groom, newly married young man, said, Dad, I love you. And this is the only time I want to have this conversation with you. I never want you to do that to my wife again. My loyalty is to her now. And if you have a problem with something I have done, you need to talk to me. Now, the scripture says to leave. It doesn't say to dishonor. The Bible tells us to speak the truth in love, and that's what this young man did. He honored his mother he apologized and rectified the, the, his negligence and, and he honored his father but was obeying and living by a precept given to him by his heavenly father that that marriage and that union now takes the place of and, and comes before all other relationships. Should you tell your mother happy birthday? Yes. Should you try to be diligent as best as you can? But you see this precedent here of leaving. And parents, you have to help your children do that. I'm preaching to, to parents and those who will be parents one day. This is, the Bible teaches this, this precept. It's so obvious and so loud and clear. He shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Sometimes parents want to keep control emotionally. And sometimes they do it financially. I told you you wouldn't like everything you heard tonight, but as Brother Legrand used to say, I may have to leave here running, but I'm going to tell you the truth before I, before I leave here. I recall a young couple who received a loan from the groom's parents to make a major purchase, and they had the daughter-in-law, and not their son, but the daughter-in-law, sign a statement, a promissory note, that in the event of the son's death, she would pay the loan off. There are several things wrong with, with that, but just let me say, parents, if you're going to do that, I wouldn't say you should, but if you're going to, treat the in-law just like you treat your own child. And why not just make it a gift to them both, or, or don't do it at all? And to the young couple, don't have a financial dependent on either sets of your parents. If you're going to get married, if you're going to establish your own home, do that. You may have to sit on 
on milk cartons and eat off of a card table, and you may not have all the things that your mother and daddy had, but it is better to leave and cleave, and what you have is yours than to have a relationship that is bound by these kinds of things, and uh, you need to be very careful about it. This leaving is an emotional, physical, a literal leaving. Now, we could go back. I know that some would argue that in, in the biblical times, sometimes several generations would live together. And uh, I've read script books and life in biblical times and all the rest. But the precedent, the principle is still the same. You are an entity. When you say, I do, when you take a husband, girls and ladies, you become Answer to your husband, submissive to him. Husbands, when you take a wife, you're to love them as Christ loved the church. And that marriage, that home, supersedes every other relationship. You don't dishonor your parents. You love your parents. You do all that you can. But you're now a unit of your home to establish these things and live out the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ through those Wedding vows. How many of you are glad you came so far tonight? Thank you. Do not dishonor or treat unkindly or make efforts to see or not to see or a fellowship with your parents and children. I know all those things are, are sticky and it takes the wisdom of Solomon to work them all out. But uh, parents, you should, as, as much as anything, help the young couple to get established and be there for emotional and prayer and spiritual support and everything that you can. But, but their business is their business and your business is your business and that's the best way to handle business. But leave. Establish your own family. The second word there is cleave. I told you that the message will be simple to remember tonight. Leaving and cleaving. And it means to cling, to adhere to, to be joined together, to be glued together. What a, what a picture it is. When I counsel young, uh, married, pre, premarital counseling, I always give this vivid example. And some of you are going to smile because you know what it is. While we're talking about these things, I will draw a man on a piece of construction paper. And I'll draw a woman on a piece of construction paper. And as we're talking about this very portion of Scripture, and in the marriage counseling, we go from Genesis to Revelation, just talking about all the, the Scripture that has to do with relationships. And I will cut the man out, and I'll cut the woman out, and the look on the couple's always kind of like, this is really, this is, you know, kindergartenish. it's really strange here. And then I will glue them together. And as I'm talking, I will just glue them together and rub those two pieces together and... Uh, like that and then to illustrate what the scripture is this one flesh you try to separate those two once they've been put together it's not a pretty sight neither one of them looked like they did before and this is as much emotional as it is anything else and rarely rarely do i do that without someone crying i had a, i had a bride just break down one time a bride to be break down crying she said that's so so pitiful i said that's what it it is it is pitiful we're to be glued to one another now every day satan will try to 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 chip away the mortar that holds the the blocks of your marriage together he does it with all kinds of things this this speaks of of our effort to to, to remain under the lord's will 
Look at the text. They shall cle- he shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. This speaks of the, the intimacy of the marriage relationship, emotionally and physically. Paul reiterates this principle, and we're going to deal with this in a whole different message, but just the scripture there in Ephesians 5 and verse 28, so ought men to love their wives as their own body. Over and over again, that portion of scripture, Paul says they ought to. He, he gives that, that holy responsibility. You ought to love your wives. You should love your wives as their own bodies. He gives that example. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourish, nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. Think of the nurturing, cherishing that our Lord showers over his church. We are members of his body, bone, of, of, of his flesh and of his bones. We're the very bones and flesh in this picture of the Lord. How could you separate the two? For this cause, and the apostle reiterates this divine principle that God establishes in Genesis. Again, we read it almost verbatim in verse 31. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined into his wife, glued to his wife. They too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. One of the most glorious and beautiful mysteries of the scripture. It is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself. And the wife see that she reverence her husband. Charles Spurgeon, in response to this particular verse, says, A husband loves his wife with a constant love, and so does Christ his church. He will not cast her away tomorrow, having loved her today. He does not vary in his affection. He may change in his display of affection, but the affection itself is still the same. A husband loves his wife with an enduring love. It will never die out. He says, Till death do us part will I cherish thee. But Christ will not even let death part his love to his people. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. A husband loves his wife with a hearty love, with a love that is true and intense. It is not mere lip service. He does not merely speak, but he acts. He is ready to provide for her wants. He will defend her character. He will vindicate her honor because his heart is set upon her. It is not merely with the eye that he delights now and then to glance upon her, but his soul has her continually in his remembrance. She has a mansion in his heart from which she can never be cast away. She has become a portion of himself. She is a member of his body. She is part of his flesh and of his bones. And so is the church to Christ forever, an eternal spouse. Brethren, this is holy and sacred ground that we're on. We're living in dark days where these very things are being cast aside and eroded. The church's commission is to preach the gospel to every creature and to live out the gospel. And the clearest picture of the gospel is Christian marriages lived out before a frowning world where people have such a low view of it 
Oh, may we revere Christ's church. May we never cast a reflection on the bride of Christ. And may we never cast a reflection on our marriage, on our mates. May all who look upon it see the outworking of the gospel, of this beautiful picture, this mystery of Christ loving his church and giving himself for it. Oh, what a picture. What a, what a pattern for us. A man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, how instructive it is to us. We know that people look lightly upon these things in this day and and even some professing believers, but may we never lower the standard. May we seek out your will and all this matter, may our, our families and the marriages and the, the children be reared of the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. May we live out these things before a frowning world in a dark day. May the light of your gospel shine from your church and from the homes that make up your church, Lord. We pray in Jesus' precious name.